Hello, folks, and uh, welcome to another session of um, of sex sex SACPA this afternoon. During this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we're very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Our speaker today is Sarah El Elmaligi on the topic of what bears teach us. Uh, Sarah has been a passion has been passionate about conserving conserving Alberta's wildlife and wild landscapes since she was a child exploring Banff National Park with her parents. Sarah believes that most wildlife management is really about managing people. Throughout her work, she has worked closely with communities, stakeholders, First Nations, governments and park visitors to advocate for the creation of new protected areas, improve land management, and to effectively engage communities in conservation. Sarah has worked for the Alberta Parks as a planner, designing facility plans to improve the ecological integration, integrity of Kananaska's protected areas while creating high quality recreational opportunities. Sarah believes in the inherent value of Alberta's wilderness and ensuring human practices are sustainable and in balance with the needs of wildlife and ecosystems. Her first full-length book, What Bears Teach Us, focuses on the human-bear relationship and how we can achieve coexistence. She's currently she currently owns and operates Sarah Consulting and lives in Canmore, Alberta with her husband, daughters, dog, and cats. Sarah holds an undergraduate degree in zoology from the University of Alberta, a master's at the University of Northern British Columbia, and completed her doctoral work at Central Queensland University. Thank you very much today for joining us, Sarah, and we look forward to your talk. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. As you can see, I am bringing in a little bit of the holiday spirit. It's been my resolution since we entered lockdown 2.0 to wear a Santa hat in all of my video conferences just to help bring a smile to everybody's face because the world feels very serious these days. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my book, What Bears Teach Us, this afternoon and uh, I hope it teaches you something and helps to shape your perspective a little bit about bears in Alberta. Uh, so next slide, please. Okay, so before we jump in, I wanted to tell you a little bit about myself. So let's take a step back. Anytime we have an interaction with a wild animal, we come to that interaction with all of our preconceived notions and expectations of how that is going to go. Our relationship with nature and wild animals starts from the moment we go outside. I grew up in Alberta and I spent my childhood recreating in Alberta's parks. We knew bears were there and we took efforts not to run into them. My mom used to buy me a can of Coke to get me to the top of the hike, which was always such a, such a special treat. The second treat, aside from the Coke, was that when I finished the Coke, I could put rocks inside the can and shake it all the way up the trail. That tells the bears you're coming, my mom would say. Fast forward to my adult life and I had always believed I should never want to encounter a grizzly bear because they're dangerous and could hurt me. While that's true, it's definitely not that simple. 
Over the years, I've come to learn that bears are so much more than scary stories told in the newspaper or fluffy teddy bears from TV. My master's work showed me that bears didn't always want to run away from people. And my PhD taught me that how bears select habitat around people depends on many different things, but mostly depends on the individual bear. Throughout my research, I've learned that regardless of where you are and what bear population you're working with, the human experience is an essential part of the encounter. Coexistence is defined by us, how we perceive the risk and outcomes of these encounters. Today, I'm going to challenge you to think about how you define coexistence, what it means to you, and what you're willing to do to get there. Next slide, please. When I first became a bear biologist, I thought I'd be working with bears exclusively. <laughs> how wrong I was. As usual, bears showed me that my assumptions weren't always correct. And I frequently come back to this statement that one of my graduate supervisors said during my master's. Wildlife management is usually just as much people management. If we are going to effectively manage for human bear coexistence, we need to consider that we will in effect be managing people. Rarely do we manage bears directly. It's ironic because we often think of managing wildlife because of what we as people need. Really, if we want to manage for what we need, we need to think about managing ourselves. I'll get a little bit more into that. In terms of research, this idea of managing people has prompted me to incorporate social science with biological science and take an interdisciplinary approach to my research. That helps me create final management recommendations that address bears' biological needs while addressing the perspectives of people. Since most management recommendations actually pertain to the way people use land in one way or another. In terms of the conservation work I do, keeping people in mind helps me to think about what we can all do to make the lives of bears better. Next slide, please. Throughout my research, I became more and more aware of the individual variation within bears. This idea was reflected in my data, but it was also something I witnessed every day. Over my years working with bears, I had become very aware of their personalities, events that had happened to them that predisposed them to act in a certain way. These things could be reflected with data points, but there was a piece of the story missing. During my time away from research, I began to think as a recreationist again. I began to watch other people's interactions with bears or listen to other people's stories. I began to understand how the things that bears had taught me through my research framed my expectations of every encounter I had, but that other people hadn't been taught those same things. I wanted to share what bears had taught me, not just the science behind my research, but what they had taught me about who they were and who I am when I'm with them. I pitched the idea to John Marriott, your text, my pit, your, my text, your pictures, awesome meets awesome. It wasn't a hard sell. Next slide, please. John Marriott and I met over a decade ago when I first moved to Canmore. And over that time, we've worked on a few different projects together. All of those projects have been about communicating bear conservation issues or influencing habitat management to protect bear access to high quality habitat. What I like about working with John is that we are on the same page. We both value bears and their right to exist in a landscape where they are free to access the foods they like without people getting in the way. We both believe that people can take actions to improve the human bear relationship. And then it's easier to ask people to cut down a crab apple tree in their yard than it is to ask a bear not to eat delicious crab apples. Next slide, please. So what is our book about? As a scientist, I value data, and there is a ton of research about bear behavior and habitat use 
that the average person may not have access to. Through my work and my play, I have been blessed to spend hour upon hour with bears, watching them, writing down what they're doing, and trying to understand why they do what they do. I've been elated, mystified, scared, curious, surprised, inspired, and nervous. When I think about it, a lot of what I've learned about bears and from them come from my own personal bear stories. But it's hard to describe what it's like to look into those deep brown eyes. How could I possibly put into words the depth of emotion and decision-making that I see when I look into a bear's eyes? That's why I needed John. Our book weaves the science of bear behavior with stories from the field, with John's amazing photos to bring you North America's bears in a way that maybe you've never seen them before. So for me, it all started with my master's work in a place called the Kutsumatine. And this is one of the only pictures in the slideshow that isn't one of John's actually. This is the very first picture I took of a grizzly bear and I'm just gonna read you a short excerpt from the book. The first time I looked into the deep brown eyes of a grizzly bear, I think I stopped breathing. For a moment, all was still. I was doing something I had been told never to do. I was sitting mere meters away from one of North America's largest carnivores, looking him right in the eyes. He looked back at me with a lazy, quizzical expression. A lazy strand of water dripped from his lips as he munched on long blades of sedge grass from the estuary shore. I just stared. Thoughts raced through my mind. What would happen now? What would he do? What would I do? Was this safe? This is crazy. Nobody should be this close to a bear. What am I even doing here? I was stranded in space and time, unable to move and unable to speak. But then I exhaled and relaxed. The bear just kept chewing grass as if he didn't even care I was there. I could hear his tongue and saliva processing the grass and swallowing it. I could hear him breathing. Even though I was in a small Zodiac boat with several other people, in that moment, it was just me and this big, beautiful bear. His eyes were soft, quiet, and relaxed. I was not confronted by the vicious man-eating carnivore I had grown up to believe grizzly bears were. Although he was massive, with long claws and long teeth, I felt no fear, just wonder and a little confusion. Was everything I assumed to be true about bears wrong? Uh, next slide, please. So that is sort of the beginning of the book and it really is the beginning of my journey with bears. You should be looking at a slide now that says patience and tolerance. I hope that we're on the same page. I might just check in periodically to make sure. Patience and tolerance is the first chapter of my book and it's really where the idea for this book began to take shape in my mind. Bears, particularly those living in high human use areas, show incredible patience. I am often amazed by how few bear attacks there actually are when I consider human behavior in bear habitat. I giggle at the thought that I would make a bad bear because I would bluff charge too many people for violating my personal space while I was trying to eat lunch. There are many questionable things that people do to get close to a bear for a photo or a story to tell their friends. Many people get far too close, and most of the time the bear does nothing. Few people would be so patient and tolerant as an Alberta bear if they had dozens of people closing in on them to take a photo while they were eating. Bears in these cases may even be justified in huffing and growling or even swatting people away, yet most roadside bears continue eating or just amble off. Bears display patience and tolerance with people and other bears, 
but they also can become habituated or food conditioned. To the average person recreating or living in bear habitat, these terms seem synonymous. To the wildlife manager, each of these terms is different and comes with a unique series of assumptions, understanding, and management actions. What makes a bear tolerant or habituated often has a lot to do with what they eat. Next slide, please. So I started my work with bears in the Great Bear Rainforest on the BC coast. And there's two things that are in abundance in the coastal rainforest, water and salmon, obviously. But these two things change everything about the ecosystem. Water falls from the sky in some form on most days. There are over 30 names for rain in the town of Prince Rupert. It can be spitting, pouring, misting, coming down hard, drizzling, or straight up raining. Each of these words means something different to a local, but the point is that it's always raining. This water penetrates every molecule of the rainforest. The leaves, needles, branches, mosses, lichens, soils, everything is wet. If you've ever tried to grow a garden in Calgary or Lethbridge, <laughs> you know how much plants love water. But you also know that water isn't enough to grow big, happy plants. They need fertilizer too. Introduce salmon, a true keystone species. Salmon feeds everything in this ecosystem, from the large carnivores in the ocean, like orcas, seals, and sea lions, to the bears and wolves on land. When a bear eats a salmon, it may not eat the entire fish. It usually just eats the brains and sex organs as they are the highest in fats and proteins. The rest of the salmon is scavenged by wolves and ravens who take the carcass into the forest and away from those competitive bears. They eat what they want of the salmon and leave the rest to rot in the forest. The salmon, who has been living in deep ocean for four years, has accumulated an abundance of nitrogen in its skeleton. As it decomposes, the big cedars absorb that deep water nitrogen and get their fill of fertilizer. In this way, the salmon feeds nearly every species in the rainforest. From the spring to the fall in the Kutsumatin, the Kutsumatin is rich bear habitat with consistently plentiful high protein food. With limited interference from humans, bears are free to eat as much as they want. Bears here are very tolerant of people and other bears. Apart from mating season, it is not uncommon to see bears in proximity without signs of conflict. This is largely because there is no need to compete for food when there is so much of it. It's like every day is Thanksgiving. Bears don't need to invest energy in defending their food sources. This tolerance also translates into a high degree of tolerance to people, which is optimal for bear viewing. Overall, the bears in the Kutsumatin show less signs of stress and aggression. Life is good and easy here. The abundance of food makes bears more relaxed, but in the interior, it may be opposite. Less food, less resources, and more people contribute to bears feeling more defensive and perhaps having a lower tolerance for disturbance. I explore this idea more in the book and how that influences our management actions to keep bears and people safe and happy. Next slide, please. Coming back to Alberta from the coast, I knew that bears were different here. We can't get as close to bears, but why is that? Well, there's two key differences between coastal grizzly bear habitat and interior bear habitat. The biggest one is that there's no salmon. There is less food available. No matter how you look at this landscape, it is subpar at best. With less food, bears need to wander larger distances to find it, which means they expend more energy. This also means there is more competition between bears. There's more at stake and bears are less tolerant of being disturbed by people and other bears. That brings me to the other key difference, the people. 
so many people. I'll just read a short excerpt from the book here, too. Whether a bear is well-fed or not is tied to its tolerance level, which in turn is tied to the risk of human-bear conflict. The fewer the resources, the less tolerant the bear will be to disturbance, and the higher the risk of conflict or of a bear being displaced from high-quality habitat in an effort to avoid conflict. This, however, is an oversimplification, as there is a great variation in the behaviors of individual bears. There are bears who live in the Bow Valley of Alberta who are more habituated to people than others, which can work out very well for them. It affords them access to the relatively little available high-quality habitat around human communities, especially if other bears are not willing to access it. It is dangerous, however, because once these bears leave the protection of the national or provincial parks, they are at high risk of conflict with people and they will be treated differently outside of the protected areas. It also poses a safety risk to people because there's no way for us to know exactly where a bear will draw the line. A bear may appeal, appear comfortable around people, but over time, exposure to too many people may result in a bear feeling it needs to defend its berry patch. Or worse, the bear may become too comfortable around people and end up in an urban environment accessing garbage and becoming food conditioned. Bears that select habitat near people walk a fine line between success and human bear conflict in which the bear always loses. Next slide, please. How we manage bears and how people interact with them depends on where we are, what kinds of bears are there, and what kinds of people are there. The type of management response is highly dependent on the level of human activity and human demands on the surrounding landscape. In Alaska bear viewing sites, people are strictly managed to facilitate viewing experiences. The predictability of human use is essential to keep bears and people safe in these encounters. If bears know when and where to expect people, they can decide whether they want to be around people. The predictability of human use in space and time has allowed a highly tolerant bear population to also become tolerant of people. Bears have the freedom to decide their level of human interaction, which reduces the chance of a defensive response to people. Although bears in this area may still experience an internal stress response, they've decided that the benefits of access to a rich, source like, a rich food source like salmon is worth it. In human-dominated landscapes like Alberta, human use is less predictable, resources are scarcer, and bears are less tolerant. In protected areas, people can be on any road or trail at almost any time. This lack of predictability means that bears don't always get to decide when and where to access habitat in the absence of people. Next slide. In these landscapes, we often aim to avoid bears becoming habituated because those that do may have a higher risk of becoming food conditioned, such as the bear who did this damage is running a risk of. Once that is the case, management action is almost always required to ensure public safety. To prevent bears from becoming food conditioned, managing agencies usually have plans in place to discourage bears from coming near human developments. This can involve aversive conditioning, which involves a bear being hazed with non-lethal means to leave human inha inhabited areas. This can be successful if it is consistently applied, but it doesn't address the human behavior, which may be the root of the problem. Next slide, please. I just want to take a little bit of a step back from the science of coexistence and tell you a little story about the Kutsumatin. So this is one of the stories that is featured in the book. 
Then there's Brutus, an old male at Mouse Creek. He's one of the veterans of the Coots at a ripe age of over 30. He's a big bear. His eyes are tired and he moves slowly. His left ear is partially missing, and he has many small scars along the left side of his neck from fights gone by. Over the years, this bear has held his ground against other big males, and he's won. His fur is rough and worn with age. He's occupying Mouse Creek because he is the king. But he's lost weight over hibernation, and his hip bones jut prominently from his backside. In the past three days, he's moved less than 200 meters from one end of Mouse Creek to the other. He doesn't care about our boat. He doesn't seem to care about anything. His main focus right now is eating and trying to conserve as many calories as possible so that he can be ready for when the females come. He waits patiently, eating and sleeping and trying to get strong again. In Samspanaknak Bay, there is a courting pair. These are young bears. The female, known as Hot Chocolate, is about six years old. Her courtier is a young male new to the Kutsmatin. He's not a big bear, barely bigger than her. He seems young and keen and full of vigor. Being a non-dominant bear, he's early out of the gate, trying to get a piece of the mating season before he's out-competed. Hot Chocolate is a very tolerant bear who has been around bear viewing boats her whole life. Her suitor has not. He is more wary of the boat, and we slow down about 300 meters away to ensure we don't disturb him. Often as we approach, he takes a few steps back into the forest and looks over his shoulder at Hot Chocolate, who chooses not to leave the shore. She tries to reassure him by staying put and continuing to eat the sedge grasses. Sometimes he comes back to join her. Sometimes she goes and joins him. It's a funny game they play at alternating who is the boss. It's her beach and she's lived there for years, so he's in her house. But he's the male, even if he is a little young. He's tried to mount her a few times while they've wrestled in the grass, rolling around and rubbing noses. She's walked away. She's not ready. Courting takes time. A male bear needs to wait until the female is fully in estrus before she will be receptive. Hot chocolate just isn't there yet, and so he waits for her to be ready. Patience is a virtue, even if you're a bear. Next slide, please. The next chapter in the book is about adaptation and coexistence. In Canada's dynamic landscapes, what it takes for bears to adapt and coexist varies across man-made boundaries, between towns, between provinces and territories, and over the international border we share with the U.S. This is a massive challenge for bears because they don't always know how to be a good bear or, or behaviors that make them problem bears. In reality, even the terms good bear and problem bear are defined by people. Bears are really just bears. When bears don't behave as we expect them to, they are essentially punished through management actions. Some people believe that this repeated punishment can cause bears to become more aggressive around people over the long run, thus reinforcing assumptions that bears are violent and out to get us. Even though research has shown reality is far more complex than these simple assumptions indicate, society continues to expect bears to behave a certain way. Regardless of how many people live in or develop an area, the local bear population must learn specific adaptations to successfully coexist. People, however, must also learn to adapt and coexist. Coexistence is a two-way street. When it comes to coexistence, how we treat bears is just as much a part of the puzzle as how they treat us. Next slide, please. Yep. In any human wildlife encounter, people and their reactions are essential parts of the story. A person's level of fear during an encounter can also affect the public expectation of management response. 
In the case of large carnivore management, fear can shape tendencies to support or oppose government policies directed towards these species. <clears throat> People fear bears, especially when they are approaching settlements or in areas of human use. Think about the last time you saw a bear. How afraid were you? Why or why not? And how do you think your fear influenced the bear or your expectations of what should happen next? Perceived threat is a significant contributor in determining a person's acceptance of various management options, particularly lethal control of bears captured in urban areas and for bears involved in repeated conflict situations. Some people may perceive black bears with their smaller size and tendency to hide as less of a threat than grizzly bears, yet in North America, wildlife agencies receive over 40,000 complaints annually related to black bears. Fear of bears is a major reason for complaints from people who are inexperienced or less knowledgeable about bear behavior. In Alberta, black bears on private property are considered vermin and can legally be shot in defense of property or life. In our communities, black bears get into garbage, make a mess, get into our fruit trees and cause a general sense of annoyance. People may fear the bear or the potential property damage, which is fair enough. As I explore in this chapter, bears again taught me how individual they are and how everything I thought I knew about bears could be upended at any moment. How you never actually know a bear. Next slide, please. John and I spent some time in the Yukon writing this book, and what immediately struck me was how vast the wilderness is up there. With two to three times as many bears as people, bears have all kinds of space, and that makes them different bears. It was on this trip that I began to think about, about coexistence and how it was different based on where you are in the world. But who has to do most of the adapting depends on who is the more dominant species. In the Yukon, it wasn't people that dominated the landscape. And this changed what it meant to coexist. Next slide, please. These three photos tell a story of a bear that we had been observing in the Yukon for several days, who was always very calm and quite habituated to our vehicle. But then when I behaved in an unexpected way, uh, the bear charged me. And it took both John and I a little bit by surprise that this super calm bear would bluff charge me. And I realized that I had done something that the bear wasn't expecting I would do. I had kind of broken the rules of what people are allowed to do and the bear didn't like that. And this was his way of telling me, you need to get back inside your little human box of behavior. Next slide, please. Coexistence to me is living with wildlife. This is a scenario where people and wildlife use the same habitats at either the same or different times. And I envision this relationship to be fluid. People change their activities, animals adapt their behavior. Essentially, people in wildlife adapt to share habitat without conflict. Implementing this level of coexistence would mean that all people and all animals display a mutual respect all the time, giving each other space and access to resources without competition or conflict. While I think this is possible, it is utopic. And I think that we often do struggle to live with wildlife. Next slide, please. Here's an example of coexistence that's actually more living next to wildlife and polar bears in the Arctic. They've got an electric fence set up and it's polar bears on one side and people on the other. In this particular situation, this works to keep people and bears separate and to keep everybody safe. But you can't always build a fence to physically separate bears from people. Next slide, please. The reality is that coexistence is achievable when we work together to achieve it. So I think we need to consider what coexistence means to us as individuals. So 
what are you willing to do in your personal daily life or weekly life or recreational life to coexist with bears? But then also, what is your community doing to coexist with bears? Um, I live in Canmore and the community of Canmore does a lot of things to coexist with wildlife. We have bear-proof garbage bins. We have uh, centralized garbage pickup. There's no outdoor compost. We have bylaws in town that prohibit bird feeders during certain times of year or having uh, fruit bearing trees with fruit on them. And we've also done some work uh, cross jurisdictionally with a human wildlife coexistence working group that started to look at human wildlife coexistence on a larger scale and trying to identify some actions that could be put into place to achieve coexistence objectives across the Banff National Park boundary, Alberta public lands and the town of Canmore municipal boundaries. Next slide, please. But the overarching thing that I've learned about living with bears and working with bears and thinking and dreaming about bears all the time is that a bear is not just a bear. Sometimes they are silly and sometimes they stare at you with daggers in their eyes. Sometimes bears make sure you know who is boss and other times they don't even care if you're there. Research shows us that bears are individuals and so does personal experience. Research can help us understand how bears use habitat and what is important to them as they make daily decisions about where to be and what to eat and who to be around. Experience can help us understand the personalities of each bear, even if we only see them once. Look at the two bears in these photos. This is the whole reason why I wanted to partner with John on this book. <laughs> when you look at the black bear on the right, you can tell he's annoyed. His hackles are up, he's staring intently, he even has a furrow in his brow. The bear on the left doesn't care about you at all. It doesn't <laughs> care about much actually, except for whatever is in that hole on the ground. At the end of the day, what bears have taught me is just to be yourself and don't be afraid to make it clear how you feel. I wrote this book to help people think about their relationship with bears and maybe to see them a little differently when they encounter them or hear other people speak of them. Bears, just like nature as a whole, have a lot to teach us. We just have to sit still long enough to listen. Next slide, please. And that is the end of my brief talk for Sackpot. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Um, I do own my own consulting company. It's Sarah E. Consulting, and I'm I just started this company and I'm trying to do a lot of work with human bear coexistence and communities. My email address is there and I also have a blog. The blog address is there. And if you would like to order a copy of What Bears Teach Us, which I hope that you do, uh, you can order that through Rocky Mountain Books. But the book is also available anywhere that books are sold, Amazon and Indigo. But during these incredibly hard times, I really encourage you to support your local independent bookstore and buy a copy through them. I think they need our support. And our local independent bookstores are really a driving force behind creativity and writing in Canada. So uh, thank you very much for your time. And I guess now I'll entertain some questions for the next half hour. Lovely. Thank you, Sarah. Um, lots of questions in the queue, so I'll jump right in. Laurie Schultz in Alberta. Is there sufficient policy and support to manage quotations, good people and quotations, bad people in bear habitat? If not, what would you like to see? Uh, so I think it really kind of depends on where you are in Alberta, because some communities like Canmore do have municipal bylaws that I mentioned around the outdoor composts and 
um, and fruit trees and things like that. But that is pretty unique to Canmore. Not all communities in the human wildlife interface along the eastern slopes have similar bylaws. Um, so there is regulations and policies that govern our relationship with grizzly bears at all levels of government. So if coexistence is important to you, then I would suggest that you might want to approach your town council and talk about what initiatives can you make real in your community at the municipal level to encourage coexistence. So whether that's how you manage garbage and attractants or putting it in bear proof bins or whatever. Um, but then I think there's also things that we can do on a provincial level. So grizzly bears, for example, are legislatively protected under the Alberta Wildlife Act. Uh, because they are a threatened species in the province. And so that act does legislate, you know, that we don't have a grizzly bear hunt and things like that. Um, one of the things that that act does commit the Alberta government to doing is having a current grizzly bear recovery plan, which they do not currently have. So the current grizzly bear recovery plan has been in draft form for uh, four years now. <laughs> and there is the need to update some population data, which is happening right now, but I really do hope that we have an updated grizzly bear recovery plan in 2021. And if that's something that's important to you, then you should perhaps write your MLA or the Minister of Environment and Parks and let them know that that is an important issue for you. Um, our next question comes from Bev Mundell. What behavior did you exhibit that resulted in being bluff charged? I peed. <laughs> really had a big cup of coffee that morning and we were like in our vehicle and I just suddenly was like I really have to go to the bathroom like I just can't I can't hold it anymore and so I so super carefully like we were we were pretty far away from this bear I thought and would like I opened the car door super slowly bear has no reaction I like step out of the car bear has no reaction I walk around the car no reaction. I like walk to the opposite ditch, like walking away from the bear, obviously. The bear has no reaction, but I squatted down in the ditch to go to the bathroom and that's what triggered the bluff charge. And I was, and then I stood up and I'm like doing out my pants and I turn around and this bear is like right there. And I'm like, oh, hi bear, just everything's fine, just relax. And I got back in the Jeep and John was just like, that bear didn't like that at all and I was like what happened there he was so relaxed and then when I came home I was discussing it with a colleague and I was like what happened like I don't actually know what I did wrong I thought I did everything right and the reality is I did something that the bear didn't expect me to do and he didn't like that and there is uh, my colleague was telling me that he had observed some bears in Russia when they were engaging in like posturing kind of challenging fights that one bear would kind of go lower down and that that was like a challenging body position and so the bear might have thought i was challenging him even though i wasn't facing him at the time or it could just be that i reacted in a way that was really unpredictable and he didn't like it our next question comes from mark goodall how well do grizzly bears coexist with black bears well, grizzly bears are 
bigger, so they're technically the more dominant species on the landscape, I guess. Uh, but there is lots of areas where grizzly bears and black bears like overlap in their range in Canada and the U.S. Black bears are black bears do live across the country, like they're in almost every single province. Whereas grizzly bears are really relegated to like the western. Uh, BC, Alberta, Yukon, Northwest Territories area. So they don't overlap everywhere. Um, grizzly bears and black bears actually use their habitat in different ways. So uh, like black bears are more forest species. Um, and so they kind of like, they can climb trees a lot better and they can access resources that way or safety that way. Um, but yeah, they do share habitats. And I guess when push comes to shove, grizzly bears are more dominant. So grizzly bear gets the spoils usually unless it's a really big black bear and a small grizzly bear our next question comes from knut peterson good to see you again sarah it's been more than eight years since you last spoke at sacpa when we were discussing clear cutting clear cut logging in the old man uh, yep. river watershed it's nice to hear from you Newt. <laughs> um this question are you familiar with charlie russell yes yeah, and actually, um, Charlie, uh, some of his work was in the Kutsmatine as well. And so then when I was doing my master's, I was kind of following up on some of his early work in the Kutsmatine. And I met Charlie and we talked about some of the bears in the Kutsmatine. Um, and, you know, to be honest, a lot of his work is really foundational for me because he did start to plant this idea in my head about how we treat bears is reflected back to us. And so if we choose to treat bears with aggress aggression, like with aversive conditioning and hazing and all those things, are we then prompting grizzly bears to treat us with aggression because they feel like they always have to be on the defensive? There's not necessarily like scientific data that proves that, but but I always really appreciated that perspective of Charlie's because it, I think when we start to treat nature and bears with kindness, we could be pretty surprised at the kind of kindness that is reflected back to us. Um, just a quick question back to your story about uh, being bluff charged. Um, a quick comment from Mark Goddall, never moon a bear, I guess. Yep, lesson <laughs> learned. <laughs> um, our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. I've been told there are decreasing numbers of bears in the castle area, but have also been told that a DNA hair study shows more than 280 individual grizzlies. Could you comment, please? Yeah, the castle is a little bit of a, I think one of the challenges with quantifying bear populations in the castle is that the castle is truly a transboundary population between uh, the southwest corner of BC, the southeast corner of British Columbia, and down into Montana. And so it, you can't really talk about the population of bears in the castle without thinking about that larger transboundary population unit. Um, so there is evidence that grizzly bear populations in the castle are increasing. And I do work with Andrea Morehouse, who did a lot of that work. And so I don't want to really speak to her work because it's her work. Um, the castle has really rich grizzly bear habitat. And uh, and there and it is a source of, um, it is a, a relatively healthy grizzly bear population in Alberta. Um, but I think it's always important to, when we see population increases, 
we should be asking who is responsible for that increase because in the U.S., in the lower 48 states, their Endangered Species Act legislation is so strong that it compels government agencies to act and it funds recovery for species at risk. So grizzly bears are listed as threatened or sorry, endangered in the lower 48 states. And the state of Montana has done a lot of really concerted work to recover grizzly bears in Montana. So when we're seeing an increase of grizzly bears in the castle, is that because of the work that Montana is doing and those bears are just walking across the international border? Or is that because of work that we're doing? And there's a lot of really great work happening in Southwest Alberta, the Waterton Biosphere Institute and all of these efforts to work with landowners to cope, to better coexist with grizzly bears on the landscape. And so I think we are seeing more bears in that area, um, but I don't know for sure how much and I won't know until the updated population estimates come out next year. Our next question comes from uh, Maura Henrahan. Fascinating, Sarah. Are bears still losing habitat in Alberta? I guess it kind of follows up on what we just talked about. Yeah, they for sure are. And uh, the big thing for bear habitat in Alberta is what we're calling linear disturbance. So linear disturbance is a road or a trail or any kind of man-made linear feature in the landscape. It could have been used for industrial use at one point and now is used for recreational use. I mean, most of these linear features are used by people for some reason or another. The research does show that high rates of linear disturbance do impact grizzly bear habitat use and population viability, survivability, mortality, uh, and uh, and movement. And so what are we doing to reduce linear disturbance in Alberta? Um, that directly will relate to how healthy grizzly bear populations are. But the other thing that it does is when we can find ways to reduce the linear disturbance, we're providing space for bears to access resources without coming into contact with people, which can directly contribute to reducing human wildlife conflict. So reducing linear disturbance along our eastern slopes is not only good for bears it's good for people and i think we always have to keep that in mind um i'm just gonna ask a question if i may um what about the open pit mining uh that that how will that affect and specifically i'm thinking about southern alberta um, as we have a lot of leftbridge people tuning in today um how does that impact impact on the on the bear population? Yeah, I mean, that's not an easy question to answer. I mean, the easy question is that, of course, it impacts them because an open pit mine impacts all wildlife. Um, there are a bunch of different ways and things that happen when we have a massive industrial development footprint like that on the landscape. So the immediate impact is that habitat is removed, like because you have now taken it away to get at the coal that's underneath. Um, and reclamation processes can help to reclaim some of that habitat over the long term, which means that you can replace that habitat. So in the long term, some people might try to suggest that there are no cumulative effects to grizzly bears from open pit mining because we removed habitat, but we put it back 20 years later. So it's all good. However, 
in that 20 year time frame, there's a lot of things that are happening. So it's not just the habitat removal. It also a big thing is the increased human use that is happening in the area as you have people working the mine and all of the coal being transported to wherever it's being transported to be transported to wherever it's going. Um, and all of that disturbance on the landscape can impact grizzly bear movement through the area. It can impact grizzly bear habitat use. Uh, but the movement, especially in Southern Alberta, that is that is really key, right? Like Highway 3 is already a significant barrier to north-south grizzly bear movement. Um, in parts, the Continental Divide acts as its own barrier to east-west movement, but there is lots of east-west movement in over some uh, shallower passes across the continental divide. Um, and so when we build additional roads and additional linear disturbance in grizzly bear habitat to move miners to and from work every day or to move uh, coal to its destination, uh, we start to increase grizzly bear habitat and movement and how they use the space around the mine. And a grizzly bear in the wild in Alberta, it, it's rare that a wild grizzly bear in Alberta would see 20 years. So if the mine is reclaimed perfectly in 25 years and it looks exactly like it did and nothing has changed, well, now you're dealing with a different generation of bears which have learned to use the landscape differently. And so just because you've put it back doesn't mean it can be the same again, if that makes sense. Thank you. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. About, about two years ago, Two bear cubs were orphaned around spring banks. There was much controversy re whether they should have been rescued or left on their own. Can you comment on an appropriate response? Well, I mean, that's a this is a really good question. So I'm not gonna lie, you guys are you guys are really keeping me on my toes right now. <laughs> um, so when grizzly bear cubs are orphaned. Um, it's difficult to know what the correct what the correct response is, right? As soon as a grizzly, as soon as a cub, black bear or grizzly bear, as soon as a cub is orphaned, it's lost its mother. Its mother teaches it so many important things in those first few years of life. And now those lessons are, are gone. Well, not totally gone. Um, so it firstly depends on the age of the cubs. So if they're first year cubs or second year cubs, um, I guess their survivability in the wild would be dependent on how old they are. Obviously, the older they are, the better chance they have. Um, but it also depends on, to me, it depends on how did they get to be orphaned in the first place? So when we talk about rehabilitating cubs, that's okay for those cubs. But if it's not addressing the root cause of the problem, which is like, you know, sometimes it's that the sow mother, this the sow um bear was struck by a motor vehicle and died or accidentally shot during a hunting incident. Uh, we, I think it's really important to start addressing the root causes of these issues that lead to the creation of orphan cubs in the first place. There is research that shows that cubs can be rehabilitated. Um, that's not currently permitted to happen in Alberta, grizzly bears are not allowed to be rehabilitated if they're found orphaned. There are some very committed people who are working to change that policy and legislation. Um, part of the challenge with rehabilitating cubs 
is that you have to know where you're going to reintroduce them. And it makes sense to reintroduce them where they came from, but if you haven't addressed the root problem of how they became orphaned in the first place, that might not necessarily be setting those cubs up for success. And if you reintroduce them somewhere else into a new landscape, it can be really challenging for them to find a home for themselves in an area that they know nothing about. That doesn't mean that I don't think that we shouldn't try. I think grizzly bears are a threatened species in the province. And if we have orphaned grizzly bear cubs and somebody is willing to try to rehabilitate them and reintroduce them in a way that is safe for people and safe for bears, I don't know why we shouldn't put that effort in. Our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. You noted the grizzly bear hunt is not a thing, but there is still a black bear hunt. What purpose does this serve? And are they hunted for meat or simply trophy? Um, Okay, so I guess whether they're hunted for meat or trophy is up to the hunter. Uh, Traditionally and typically bears are hunted for trophy. However, there are people who eat bear. So I don't want to make a generalized statement. I do know people who eat black bear. Uh, Grizzly bear is more typically a trophy hunt. Um, I'm... The hunt is a really hard... Oh, you guys are asking some hard questions. The hunt is a very difficult question because um, I think it's really controversial and it really starts to get into people's preferences. And I don't want to weigh into whether or not I think a hunt is right um, or morally right or anything. Uh, But what I do want to say is that grizzly bears are threatened in Alberta. So hunting grizzly bears doesn't make sense because it contravenes the efforts that we're making to recover them. And recovery means having more animals on the landscape. So hunting grizzly bears isn't in alignment with other provincial initiatives to recover grizzly bear populations in Alberta. In terms of a black bear hunt, we have many more black bears. And so it is possible to consider a more sustainable hunt in that hunting black bears isn't going to negatively impact black bear populations in the province. Uh, So that it's really about the number of bears on the landscape. And I don't want to weigh into whether or not I think the black bear hunt is right, because that's just my personal opinion. Our next question comes from Clint Peterson. Uh, Lethbridge College has adopted Kodiaks as their name for their athletic teams. Can you talk about the particular species, about that particular species of grizzly bear? Sure. So Kodiaks are the same species of grizzly bears like we have in Alberta. Uh, In Alaska, there are parts of Alaska that have a salmon run through the winter. And so there are small populations of grizzly bears in Alaska Uh, that don't hibernate in the winter because food is available year round. The males don't hibernate or they hibernate for very short periods of time. In these populations, because they have so much food to eat and they're just eating all the time, they have grown to be very, very large. Mm. And a lot of them live on Kodiak Island in Alaska. And that's where the name Kodiak bears comes from. So biologically, it's still the same species of bear that we have here. It's just that they eat a lot, and so they're just a lot bigger. And that's how they've gotten their different name. Our next question comes from Beth Mundo. Could you explain how your research mitigates our tendency to explain other species through our anthropomorphic perceptions? Thanks. Oh, wait. <laughs> hang on a minute. Um, 
she continues, I mean, how do you keep yourself from seeing bears in human terms? I don't. And I actually think that we don't have to do that. Who says? Who says that we can't assign human qualities to animals to explain their behavior? I have seen bears being happy and sad and frustrated and annoyed and peaceful and calm. And I've seen emotional responses in bears with all of these things. My research and my science does not reflect the anthropomorphism because the, science, the data is the data and it says what it says and recommendations for management stemming from science are about the science. And the data doesn't measure personality. Uh, but I think that it's okay for scientists to talk about their subject species and the emotional attachments or the personalities that we observe uh, with these species, I think it helps people to understand them a little bit more. And I know that there's a whole bunch of biologists out there who are just going to totally disagree with me right now. But I think when you talk about the science, you can talk about the science. But there's no point in acting like you're not passionate about your study animal and its conservation. I think the more scientists can share with people their passion and what drives them in their career, the better chance we have of getting people to pay attention to the science and um, and hopefully attribute value to that for land use and wildlife decision-making. I love you two kitty cats having a nice groom behind you. <laughs> it's very sweet. Just like that. Yeah. It's because they love each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Were the Waterton fires eventually beneficial or detrimental to bear population? Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, I mean, the impact of fire on the landscape, it can take a long time to measure how that might impact habitat use and grizzly bear movement through an area. And the Kenau fire is a massive uh, wildfire event. So I do know that there are several research projects happening right now that are trying to get at that and trying to understand how bears are using the landscape differently. Uh, we also know from previous wildfires, like in Banff and Kootenai National Parks, that it takes over a decade for those uh, burned areas to turn into like the best berry patches ever. And then bears are just flocking to them. So there are some old burns in Kootenai National Park uh, on my remote camera work in my PhD that bears are just all over the place. Like they just love it. But it took almost, a, I think, 11 or 12 years for bear habitat use to really markedly increase in those areas. So the impacts of the Kenal fire will take over a decade or maybe even more uh, to quantify how that might Im impact bear habitat use over the long term. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Sarah, your book, uh, in quotations, What Bears Teach Us, is absolutely beautiful and informative. I was pleased Thank to I, I was pleased to purchase a copy in Lethbridge. Have you had an opportunity to speak to K twelve students about your work? Um, I have spoken to some uh, grade school classes about bears in general, not necessarily about this book, uh, but I have done presentations to grade school classes about bears and behavior and black bears and grizzly bears and stuff in the past, yes. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. About nine years ago, I had to explain to a satellite installer 
he had to be quiet for the next half hour since I was since it was time for Mama Bear and her two to swim in my dugout. He was not happy, but was on, <laughs> but he was on arrival. That's funny. I love it. <laughs> so I guess more common than a yeah. Um, our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Don't know if grizzly bears had to compete with dinosaurs way back in the day, but it can be argued that they are up against some current Freddie Flintstone types <laughs> in the political characters. Any comments? Oh, Knut, you're hilarious. <laughs> well, grizzly bears and dinosaurs didn't live at the same time. We know that from the fossil record. Um, I'm not going to comment on dinosaurs and current Alberta politics, but if you know me, you probably know how I feel about that. <laughs> that was actually our last question. We have Laurie Schultz, Sarah. Thank you for a wonderful presentation. I've Thank learned you. a great deal today and look forward to learning more as I read through your book. Um, Thank you very much for joining SACPA today, Sarah, and making the time, uh, especially on such short notice. Um, before we end the live stream, do you have a take-home message for us? Yeah, I have two things. So the first thing is that some of these questions today were very hard. I need to say that my answers were my opinion as it stands right now. But the one thing that bears have taught me is to continually be questioning my assumptions and biases and knowledge because I am learning from bears all the time. So I do just want to say that um, that the questions that you posed me today were very difficult and I wish I was more prepared with more data to answer some of them. My take home message really about this book is that coexistence between people and bears is possible as long as we're willing to think about what it's like from the bear's perspective and maybe put the bear first sometimes and change our behaviors in an effort to meet those goals. And I talk a lot more about that in the book. And I really hope that people have a wonderful holiday season and stay safe and happy and enjoy Christmas or the holidays, whatever that looks like for you this year. Thank you. And thank you everybody for joining us. Um, join us again next week. We have a special session coming up on Tuesday, December 15th with Dr. Ari Joff. Um, the response to COVID-19, do lockdowns cause more harm than benefit? So we hope to see you next week and um, thank you. That's great. Thank you so much.